Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. study of the book of Acts, we're learning a lot about being witnesses uh, for Jesus. Being witnesses for Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples um, in the outline verse for this whole book, Acts 1.8, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Uh, the disciples and the apostles were going to be his witnesses to the world, and, and we've watched them turn the world upside down. Uh, as born-again Christians who have witnessed the power and the difference that Jesus can make in our lives, we understand that if there's one thing this world needs more than anything else, it's Jesus. If only this world would believe in Jesus. If only our neighbors, our friends, our family, co-workers would believe in Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who can bring transformation. He's the one who can bring healing and good things and, and hope to our lives and our, our families and our relationships and our communities and our nation. I don't think uh, there's any of us here this morning who know Jesus, who don't want, who doesn't want those around us that we know, to know Jesus too. We all want that. We want that for everyone. However, maybe because the gospel does come with so many personal and social implications uh, that we struggle, I think, when it comes to sharing Jesus with our friends and family. It's not that we don't care. It's just that there's a lot, um, a lot of implications involved in it. And so we, we tend to make it more complicated than it needs to be. And so as we continue Paul's second missionary journey over the next few chapters here, um, I want to point out some simple and winsome witnessing principles for us. Right, we, we always make witnessing so complicated. Let's, let's boil it back down to some simple witnessing principles. As Luke highlights the way that uh, the outside world perceives the Christian mission, the effect that the world has on Jesus' witnesses, and then how we should respond to that reaction by the world. Okay, because it's not always a friendly reaction, is it? And so uh, today we're in chapter 16, we're in Philippi, and Paul's going to have four personal encounters. And the first encounter is with a gal named um, Lydia in verses 11 through 15. So uh, pick it up in verse 11. Putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. And on the day following... To Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days, <clears throat> and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began to speak to the women who had assembled. And a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics and a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart 
to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Sounds like a pretty, uh, pretty good businesswoman, right? She prevailed upon us. She's a good businesswoman. I uh, can't wait to meet her in heaven someday. But anyway, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Dr. Luke, the author, um, sail about 150 miles to Neapolis um, from, from Turkey. And uh, from Neapolis, there, the coast, the port city, they hoof it about 10 more miles uh, just up the road there on a Roman road called the Via Ignatia to Philippi. And Philippi uh, is a name that we're familiar with because Paul wrote a letter to the Philippians. Um, so uh, we're familiar with this place. And even though the, the missionaries, these four missionaries, didn't stay long here, it was a very eventful uh, city that they visited. So a lot of events happened here. And Luke records more detail about what happened in Philippi than any other city. And uh, <clears throat> because of his detailed account, because of the prominent medical school there, and Luke was a doctor, and how uh, Luke presumably stays here when Paul and Silas leave, uh, many Bible students think this might actually be Luke's home, or at least this is where he lives or has been living. And so as he states, uh, Philippi was an influential city. It was named after uh, Alexander the Great's father, Philip of Macedon. This is Macedonia. Remember the Macedonian call? Um, um, it's also a Roman colony. We want to we note that. Take note of that um, because it's going to come up later in the passage. Um, but basically what that meant was that this was like a little Rome away from Rome. It's a little Rome transplanted somewhere else. And supportive of this fact is the extraordinary amount of inscriptions. You know what I mean by inscriptions, like different writings and engravings that we find there? Um, 80% of the inscriptions that we find in Philippi are written in Latin rather than Greek. So it just confirms, the archaeology just confirms this fact that it was a Roman colony. And as such, citizens had uh, identical civil rights as those who were actually living in Rome. So this is like a little Rome. You have the same amount of rights as if you were living in Rome, which meant things like you were free from taxes and such. But this is going to play a significant role, again, a significant piece by the end of the chapter. It was also home to uh, uh, just a lot of different worship, uh, emperor worship, the imperial cult. They worshiped the emperor, Caesar, and other false deities, you know, the Greco-Roman pantheon, the whole list of gods. But um, you'll notice that the missionaries are staying in this city for a few days before they preach on the Sabbath. It's like they, they don't run into this city with guns blazing, right, preaching fire and brimstone in the Agora. They take some time. Uh, they, they settle down in this city. I imagine Paul did some tent making. He's working, uh, maybe earning a couple bucks or something. He's working hard, making some observations about the city and about the people. It was a larger city, and... And he's going he's gonna to find out if there's a synagogue to preach in first because that was, his, that was his pattern. We'll see that again next week. But that's what Paul does. Wherever he goes, he doesn't just rush in and, and with guns blazing, gospel guns blazing. He will take some time to look around and get a feel 
for the city and for its people and what they believe. And he'll, he'll use something from his observations to uh, use that as a springboard for a gospel presentation, something that's relevant to the people in that city. And I found in that a winsome uh, and simple, simple and winsome principle that we need to be uh, observant if we're going to be winsome witnesses. Winsome witnesses are observant. Okay, when we, when we go to share the gospel with someone, especially in our culture today, um, man, I, I, just, I just think the days of preaching the ABC, you know, God, to everybody, ABCs of the gospel, to everybody, just, and leaving it at that, I think those days are pretty much over in our culture. Um, we've got we've to start way down here, right? I mean, who is God? What is the Trinity? What is the Bible? And I mean, it's like our church, our culture's just not, it's just so unchurched anymore that we've got to learn to be observant, to get to know people, to get to know what they believe. Uh, it's just not as easy as it used to be. Uh, that means we've got to ask questions and we've got to listen and observe. I remember guys being a young Christian and, and I'm, I was driven by the guilt of sharing the gospel. Any of you guys been there? I have to share the gospel. I know I'm commanded and I just... You know, and so I, I get all worked up inside. I'm nervous as a Nelly. I'm just sweating bullets, right? I, sh- I have to share the gospel with this person. And I unload it on some random person or someone I'm close to. And it's, it's just, it's done in such a way. I, I don't have their permission to do it. I don't even ask. And I, I do it in such a way that they're not ready to receive it. I don't ask questions. I just unload it. And it leaves both of us in this forced and just kind of awkward position right we've all been there I think and it just leaves you thinking man I never want to do that again and maybe that's the reason why we don't do it so much is because we've all been there we've unloaded the gospel on someone without being observant at all of where they're at and uh, in our unchurched culture today especially with someone that I'm going to be around regularly maybe it's friends and family or co-workers uh, my witnessing I don't have to unload it all on on them at once, right? I'm going to have probably several conversations with this person, and I'm going to seek to just be a compassionate and encouraging ear. I'm going to uh, find ways to show the love of Christ. I mean, this is kind of my experience is that as we listen to where people are at, and what they believe, that then somewhere in there, sometime, there's going to be a springboard to share the gospel based on what they're going on, what's going on in their life, right? They're going to need some hope somewhere. And if I'm demonstrating the love of Christ to them, and I have something that they need, something they want, I mean, that's, I think that's, that's where I want to be. So, uh, we're going to be observant. We've got to be good listeners today. And um, in order to, let's move on, in order to establish a synagogue, though, which was basically like a local church for Jewish people, um, it required 10 Jewish men, and a Philippi apparently didn't meet that quota. Um, if you didn't have a synagogue, Jewish custom said to congregate outdoors near running water or living water. 
uh, they would call it, so you could perform the different, you know, ritual washings. They had all sorts of washings that they would do. And so the missionaries, <clears throat> Paul and Silas, Luke, Timothy, they go down to the river, and they find uh, several God-fearing women having some sort of prayer service there. It's like they, they, they feared the God of Israel. Uh, they were monotheists. They feared the God of Israel, but they hadn't heard the good news of Jesus yet. They hadn't heard the gospel. And so Paul's just sharing with them, and, it, and a key woman here named Lydia gets saved. And Lydia is uh, a wealthy merchant from Thyatira in Turkey, as evidenced uh, by her costly purple fabric. That's something that Thyatira was known for. This place is famous for its purple dyed fabric. You know, that's the color of kings, and it was just a wealthy place. Um, actually, uh, King Croesus there, he used to be the king of Lydia, not the woman, but the, the area. Um, <clears throat> and he's the one who invented coinage. We have coinage to thank for these guys, um, these people from Lydia. But anyway, she becomes the first convert in Europe. And um, she and her family, not just her, but her family responds in faith to the good news. And they're all baptized. And you'll notice that Lydia is described here as having her heart opened by the Lord. Did you guys catch that? That always stands out to me. Who opened her heart? It was the Lord who opened her heart to respond favorably to the things spoken by Paul. And so the Lord uh, works through Paul sharing the gospel Paul's sharing the gospel, and how does God call us? He calls us through the gospel as the Holy Spirit goes to work on someone in their heart. It's, it's really neat. I think this gives us another uh, simple, winsome, witnessing principle. I mean, we need to know what's going on when we're sharing the gospel, right? Uh, what's my part and what's God's part? I share the gospel. I'm trying to win souls, but it's up to God to save them, right? He's the one who has to do the work in their heart. And that's what Luke's communicating with us. And this is something he's communicating all throughout Acts, is uh, it's not Paul and it's not us that's going to save people. We're not going to win people to the Lord in our own strength. We're going to have to be dependent. Winsome witnesses are dependent. We rely on God to work in people's hearts through the Holy Spirit as we share the gospel. And to me, that is so critical for us to be winsome witnesses. If I'm not, if I don't understand this, oh man, the, the pressure on you, right? I have to see to it that this person gets saved. I better not screw up, right? I better say all the right words. I better say all the right things. I better be the Bible answer man who can answer all their questions, right? I mean, get that pressure off of you. It's not up to you alone. The Lord, you have to know the Lord has to work in their hearts. And that's going to that's gonna calm me down when I understand that and allow me to just love this person and be compassionate and just be genuine. Uh, when I understand that, it takes all that the, the stress and the pressure of witnessing off. And uh, I'm just going to do the best I can to share the good news with someone in a way that's relative, in a way that's helpful, and I'm going to trust God to do His part. I like to say, we, we plant, I'm a farmer, right? I like to say, you know, we plant the seed, we can water the seed, but who causes the growth? God, right? His way and His timing. He's the one who's got to convict them of their sin and their need for a Savior through the gospel. 
presentation. So the second encounter is the slave girl in verses 16 through 21. It happened uh, that as we were going to the place of prayer, <clears throat> a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters uh, much profit by fortune-telling. And following after Paul and us, uh, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very moment. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, just the two of them, and they dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews. You see, hear any anti-Semitism there? Anti-monotheistic ideas, right? Uh, and they are proclaiming customs, which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the, not just prison, but into the inner prison. Like there's three chambers in a prison, and they're in the inner one, right? The dark one. And it says... And then he commanding the jailer to guard them securely, and he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Okay, so that's part of the punishment with it. So, uh, interesting account, huh? Uh, this isn't just an, account, an encounter with a slave girl, is it? Uh, it's more than that. There is a dark spiritual force, a spirit, a, a demon behind her fortune-telling powers. And you have to think how different that this girl, this young girl, this is a young girl, little girl, probably young teenager, and how different she is from Lydia. Think how different they are. Lydia is a wealthy woman with a significant business. She's in control, right? She prevailed upon us. She's a very, she's a very in-control woman. And, but this is a poor slave girl here who is in control of nothing. She's not even in control of herself and the words coming out of her mouth. She is someone's business. She doesn't own a business. She is a business. And her, her, her master, her, oh, just, it's just ugly, isn't it? Uh, her state is just heartbreaking to think of a young girl in this state. She is in spiritual bondage to a demon, and she is in physical bondage to careless masters who are using her to make a buck. They don't care. They can give a hoot about her dignity and her worth and her welfare. She is described in most of your Bibles as having a spirit of divination, and a literal translation of this would be a spirit of python. What do you think of when you think of python? A serpent, right? A snake. Python spirit. And uh, the spirit, a spirit of Python would have made perfect sense to the original audience in the Greco-Roman world. Python was a giant uh, Greek uh, serpentine goddess who is eventually killed by Zeus's son, uh, Apollo. And uh, anyway, Apollo killed 
Python in order to take over the temple where um, <clears throat> where Python was. But anyway, this this temple uh, of Python is not too far away from Philippi. Actually, today it's only a six-hour drive. It's about a uh, hundred miles northwest of Athens by Mount Parnassus, and uh, this was considered the navel or the center of the earth back in their day. They had a little rock too. Uh, that you can go put your hand on today. This was the center of the earth because one day Zeus took two eagles and he sent them around the globe and they met up right here. Okay, that was their myth. But anyway, this is a historical site you can visit today. And Python was always had this priestess named Pythia. The Pythia is what they would call her. It's basically the pope of this temple, but it's a popess or whatever you want to call her. Um, and uh, she, uh, this, this, this position of the Pythia that had a, like, a global influence on this Greco-Roman world, as we would call it, uh, basically was occupied, this position was occupied by hundreds of women for nearly two millennia, okay, from 1400 B.C. to 381 A.D. People would flock to Delphi, this little village up by Mount Parnassus, to hear an oracle from the Pythia, a word, right, a fortune, to find out, right, maybe if I'm a farmer, I'm going to go find out if I should plant this field or not, or sell this grain or not. If I'm a king, I'm going to go to the Pythia to find out if I should go to war or not, if I'm going to be victory, victorious or not. So she drew, like, great and small from everywhere. Uh, she drew Alexander the Great, uh, the great, you know, world conqueror of Greece. She drew King Croesus of Lydia, whom I already mentioned, um, he asked the oracle if he should go to war against the King Cyrus of Persia. King Cyrus, should I go to war against him? And she said something like this, if you go to war with King Cyrus, a great empire will be destroyed. Well, what the oracle didn't tell him is that this empire was going to be his own that was destroyed. And so he would, it proves you can't trust the oracle, right? You can't trust... The Pythia. And uh, he was defeated at Sardis, actually, where one of the New, Church, New Testament churches, uh, Sardis. But um, she also didn't just draw people. She drew wealth. Because if you wanted, a, you wanted a fortune, right, you got to pay money for that. So she's drawing wealth with her fortune telling. And what Pythia would do is she would basically sit on this tripod stool, like you see there, over a deep fissure in the earth, and basically what came out of this crack in the earth was narcotic vapors. And I'm going into some detail here because I want to, I want to explain where this stuff comes from, okay? Uh, fortune telling and things like that. Uh, there's narcotic vapors would come out from the earth and she would kind of go into a trance and then have a prophetic babble and someone would interpret it. And today scientists have discovered that there are two fault lines, interestingly enough, like fault lines, like earthquake, you know, fault lines underneath that temple. And uh, so right there, and, and they've, they've found that there's a, a, at these fault lines, it actually created a passageway for this gas called ethylene to come up. And that's what they used to use for um, anesthetics. And uh, just this sweet smelling gas. And anyway, basically she'd get an eye on this stuff, on this drug, and then <clears throat> it opened the door to demonic influence. Right? I mean, I always think, uh, you always think like drugs, I, I, drugs open the door to 
demonic influence. I always think when someone loses control, it's easier for someone else to take control, right? Uh, if I have no control, I should expect that. But um, this is a girl, uh, by the way, like believers cannot be possessed, but they can be oppressed by demons, right? But uh, this is a girl, that's, that's, this is who this girl is associated with, the oracle at Delphi. And, and she's probably making a fortune, and in fact, the text expresses that. She's making a fortune with her fortune-telling for her masters. And since this is a big military and ag community, uh, I'm guessing that they're all paying her to find these things out. Should I go to war? Should I plant my field? And for whatever reason, she starts to follow these missionaries, and she starts to vaguely endorse them. Did you catch that? Isn't that weird? She's making true statements about the missionary's identity and message. She's saying these, are from the, these men are from the Most High God. They're proclaiming the way of salvation. But her statements are so vague that she could change the message the next day to me, and this Most High God is Zeus. Who knows, right? What she's going to change this message to? She could say the next day the way of salvation is by giving me money. I mean, <laughs> I, that's why... Paul just gets so annoyed. I mean, it's, you can't trust this girl. Right? We learned that from King Croesus when the spirit of Python said to go to war against King Cyrus of Persia. Uh, so in Jesus-like fashion, you have to catch the parallels in the book of Acts between the apostles' ministry and Jesus' ministry. Jesus did the same thing when there was a spirit, a demon, that was actually saying, you're the son of God, what did he do? Cast it out. Don't talk anymore. He don't need Satan's help. He's not asked for Satan's help. So Paul rejects the testimony of this demon, just like Jesus, and he casts it out. And this gives us, I think, just this, this girl. You think about this girl and her message and her actions. It gives us a, an interesting principle in that winsome witnesses should be consistent. You know what I mean by that? What I mean is, is that as witnesses, we need to make sure that our lives match our message. Okay, because here's a slave girl preaching the way of salvation. She's saying the right things, but her life tells a different story. Her life is in spiritual darkness, discrediting the message. Her life doesn't match her message. How relevant for us today who are preaching the Gospels. Do our lives support the Gospel or supplant the Gospel? Because there's a lot of Christians out there who know the right words, they know the right things to say, but do their lives actually back it up? Or do their lives discredit the gospel message that they're preaching? Um, if I come to you and I, I tell you that <clears throat> I have a hair cream that'll make your hairline grow back to the way it was when you were 16. Some of you probably lost your hair at 16, to be honest, but um, I had a cousin who did that. Anyway. If I come to you and say, I have a, a hair cream that will restore your hairline to the way it was when you were young, my head better not be bald, right? Because you're not going to believe a word I say. I have a hair cream that will bring your hair, that will regrow hair, and I come to you and I'm bald? Mm -mm. You're not buying that, are you? You're not buying that hair cream. Well, if, same way, guys. If, I, if I'm out in the world and I'm telling people, I have a redeemer who can transform your life and give you hope, and yet, here I am, living in fear, and my life shows no evidence of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. 
Is anyone going to buy that? Just saying. We've got to be consistent. And while we're here, I just want to put in a word of thought that's going to get me in trouble with some of you guys. I know it is. But one of the areas we're losing some consistency in today is in relation to spiritually dark powers. Like magic. Like fortune telling. Like maybe tarot cards. And all these different things. Okay, one, one commentator pointed this out, and that's kind of why... I, I wanted to talk about it. He said, he said, he is talking about how I think the entertainment industry, the movies, the books that make magic look friendly and even sympathetic towards us have, have made us ignorant or reluctant to call something what it is. Does that make sense? We look at magic and some of these dark powers like there's something friendly and it's something to get involved in. Right? Is this a friendly spirit behind this, this slave girl? No, not at all. This is a demon. Folks, if it ain't from Jesus, it ain't a good power. Okay? It's not good power. I remember, man, when I was young, I, the, the lack of consistency, like growing up in a Christian home and yet... Uh, you know, a Christian relatives, and like, here we are as cousins playing with a Ouija board at Grandma's house. What? The lack of consistency. We're going to call ourselves Christians, but we let our little kids play with Ouija boards. Uh, how about, I, I just remember when I was like, my siblings and I watching a show called Sabrina the Teenage Witch. This is a young, beautiful girl as a witch, and it makes it look friendly and fun to get involved in these things. You guys remember that show? I mean, there's all sorts of shows. I could, I could give you a list of them. I mean, what's that doing to us? I, guys, I don't know. I just, the same thing was going on in Paul's day. The witches were young, beautiful girls. Who are they in our day? Who are they going after? The young, beautiful girls. The Sabrinas. Just feel like I had to say this this morning because we need to exercise a little more caution here, I think. Uh, especially with Halloween coming up. I'm not saying you throw Halloween out the window, I'm saying you exercise a little caution with these things. Because there are real, dark, spiritual powers going on. And there's a reason our nation likes Halloween a little bit more than Christmas now. Okay? Um, Guys, we want to penetrate? We can't help. Like, like Paul, we can't help but be exposed to some of these things, right? I can't control what they put on TV and the commercials that come on my TV. But, but I want to I penetrate the darkness. I'm not going to dabble in it. I'm not going to let my kids dabble in it, okay? So just, let's just think about that. And as a pastor, guys, I've had my run-ins with these characters, some of these dark forces. And I'll tell you, they're not very friendly, Hey, they don't like me. They want to steal, they want to kill, and they want to destroy. They're not friendly, they're not sympathetic. They might act like it, but they're going to steal and kill and destroy you. At least that's what they want to do. And so, I say that um, and move on. Paul casts the demon out. The masters get angry because their income just flew away. Um, <laughs> literally, they, they bring Paul and Silas 
before the court where they're accused of disrupting the peace for their Jewish beliefs. They're beaten by a mob. They're thrown in the innermost cell. And then we encounter number three, the jailer. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And so you have to uh, love this account. Their bodies, guys, are broken. I mean, they've been beaten, they're whipped, they've got bloody backs. Their bodies are broken, but their spirits were not. I like that. Instead of complaining, calling down curses on, on everybody, which I probably would have been doing, here they are praising God. They're actually rejoicing in their opportunity to suffer for the gospel. And I think we could look at this episode just as another aspect of what it looks like to represent the gospel well and to be consistent. Uh, we have real hope, but does that hope affect us when we're, when we're in the inner cell, you know, when we're in the dark place? Uh, does that hope still shine there? Uh, do people look at my life when I'm going through a hard time and say that person still has faith, they still have hope? What do they have? I, I want what they have. Right, So I want my life to, to speak to that, um, that hope. Psalm 42 eight says, The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime, and His song will be with me in the night. Isn't that great? His song is going to be with me in the night. And, and Spurgeon commented on that. He said, Anyone can sing in the day, but the songs in the night come only from God. You can't explain this, right? This hope and joy that these guys have in the prison cell. That comes from the Lord. Anybody can sing in the day, but the songs in the night come only from God. They're not in the power of men. That's what Spurgeon said. I thought that was great. Uh, but their song is extraordinarily interrupted by an earthquake, which many in Philippi would have interpreted as a work of God. Isn't that how your insurance interprets it? This is a work of God here. This is out of our control. Well, in, in Greece, in ancient Greece, they would have said, this is a work of God. That's how they interpreted them. Like, what God did we just upset kind of thing. And so we've got these visitors in town that we've beaten without a trial, and uh, they're preaching the gospel. Oh, no. Like, we've upset a God here. And so the city starts to tremble with fear, including the jailer. He's, he's feared that he's angered the gods because he wants to be saved now. <laughs> and then uh, he's also in fear of, of a, the punishment. Uh, of losing his life, because as a jailer, if he let prisoners go on his watch, if prisoners escaped, um, they're going to they're gonna take his life. They're going to punish him, so um, he's going to take his own life instead, and Paul says, don't, 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 right? We're still here. We're still here. We haven't gone anywhere. So Paul stops him, and in verse 29, he called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before uh, Paul and Silas, and uh, after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I wish everybody would come to me and say that. Pastor, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together. That means they explained the gospel more with all who were in 
his house. And he took them that very hour of the night, and he washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So it's not just him who believed, his household believed. It's not just Lydia who believed, it's her household who also believed. Isn't this cool? Witnesses, though, here's our simple principle from this. I skipped a lot here, but witnesses, winsome witnesses are clear. Winsome witnesses have to be clear. Look at how simple and clear Paul's message is. When the jailer asks, how can I be saved? Paul doesn't say, well, come to church. Uh, uh, come to church and, and we'll talk more. You know, we'll, uh, we'll get you baptized there. We'll, you, you might want to tithe. You want to start a Bible study and uh, do some good works and we'll see if you're really saved. After that, you know, and he didn't dump a bunch of works on this guy. He says, no, just believe in Jesus. Isn't that the gospel? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Pretty simple message, huh? What do I have to do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we go to share the gospel, let's keep it clear. Let's keep it clear, because what people struggle with these days is not, is not works, necessarily, right? I mean, every, everybody I've shared the gospel with doesn't struggle with works. They want you to tell them what I have to do to be saved, like what works, what religious works, what sacraments do I have to keep, how much do I have to give to the church, right? How many times do I have to go to church a year? That's, that's where man's heart naturally wants to go, and so we have to be clear it's not by works, Because Jesus did all the work. It's by grace, meaning it's free. You don't work for it. We have to keep that. We have to keep driving that into people's minds constantly. You have to keep preaching that to yourself. You've been a Christian for years, and you still have to preach that to yourself because the sinful heart's inclination is to, and its pride is to say, I'm going to try to be good enough for God. I'm going to try to work to get to heaven. And we have to be clear, you can't work. Jesus died. That's, that's the work that you have to trust in. It's not about what you do, but about what he did. And so we have to keep focusing people on the cross. Just keep it clear. Focus on God's grace. And anyway, this, this whole guy, this guy believes, his whole family believes. They're all baptized, just like Lydia's. And so this is really neat. Look, the gospel is transforming individuals. It's transforming families. And now it's going to affect the whole community at Philippi in verses 35 through 40, where we enter encounter the the magistrates. Uh, when the day came, verse 35, the chief magistrates in there sent their policemen, who just beat them, right? Uh, they sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer had to be excited as can be. He reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out, go in peace. What's Paul's response? Paul said to them, they've beaten us with in public without trial. Men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison and now they're sending us away secretly? No indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. Let the magistrates come and bring us out. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. And they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren there, they encouraged them and departed. And so you, you, you have to laugh 
<laughs> here at the, at the way the tables have turned. I mean, just totally flipped. I mean, who's, who's in control now, basically, right? The magistrates uh, attempt to release them quickly and stealthily. You know, like, let's get these guys out of town. Tell them they can go. Let's, let's pretend this never happened. Why? Because, for one, the earthquake, I mean, they're just, they fear gods, you know, <laughs> not, not God, but they fear a god. Uh, they sense that weight on them. And then number two, Cicero said it's a crime to bind a Roman citizen and to scourge him is wickedness. It's like an abomination in Roman society to scourge a Roman. And without trial, the historian Livy noted how there was heavy penalties for flogging or killing a Roman citizen without a full hearing, without a just hearing. And that's exactly what has just happened. And so if, if what went on in Philippi with Paul and Silas, if that makes its, who were both Roman citizens, if that makes its way to Rome, they might never serve in this role again. They're going to be, you're out of here. Okay, they're going to get fired. And it's interesting, instead of going along with it, Paul insists, instead of saying, okay, we'll, we'll leave, Paul actually insists that the magistrates themselves come and get them out. Isn't this interesting? They don't, they don't leave. They say, no, tell the magistrates to come, and they can walk us out in full view of everybody. So uh, the big question is, why? Why does he do this? Why does Paul invoke his Roman rights now? Why does he invoke his rights at all? And I think the answer is really not about Paul's rights Paul's not saying, this is my right. This is, this, is, this is not Paul's way of getting revenge. Paul was very forgiving. He was forgiving to the max, but he was not passive, we could say. And he's going to use this injustice as a public spectacle to safeguard this little emerging church in Philippi. Um, think about this. Paul could have called on his Roman rights before the beating, right? He didn't. He, he, so Paul didn't avoid persecution by referencing his Roman citizenship, citizenship and then leaving the Philippian church exposed to it. He actually joined with them in suffering. So he does that intentionally, and then he makes a public case out of the injustice so as to leave the mission at Philippi with integrity and some social merit in the eyes of the entire community. So think about this. If Paul would have just left secretly like they wanted, what would have happened? Everyone would have wondered, who were these visitors? What happened to them? It's all going to be forgotten. It's going to be out of the public's minds. But now, in leaving in this way by making them come and get them and walk them out, this little flock of believers that's going to be left in this city when the apostles leave, um, they're not, this little flock of believers isn't going to be so easy to bully anymore, is it? not going to be bullied around as much. And so there is a sense in which Paul is fostering some religious freedom and some social merit here before, uh, before the community, uh, some, some social merit for the church. It's kind of interesting. Uh, God is, I think God is with them is the message that Luke's communicating to us. I mean, the message to, to them is simple, to the magistrates, don't mess with Christ's church. Okay, <laughs> See how easy the tables turn. And then the message to us is, when some witnesses can be confident in Christ because he's going to build his church and the gates of Hades ain't going to overcome it. This church 
is overcoming obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. Obstacles from within, with division, uh, and then obstacles from without. The, the persecution from the outside, the division within, the persecution without. I mean, this church, is, this is what Luke's showing us. Obstacle after obstacle, Christ is building his church. You can't stop this. Right? You can't touch this. That's what I want to sing when I, when I read through the book of Acts. You can't touch this church. Don't touch Christ's church. If you do, you get burned. <laughs> okay? Eventually. If not immediately. Um, in sum, the whole passage reminds us of the three biggest themes that run throughout this entire Luke-Acts narrative. Remember that? Luke's volume one, Acts is volume two. I mean, they're carrying a central theme. Okay, and this, the witnessing principles that I've shared with you today, I hope you enjoyed them. But this is really, what I've got here, these last three points, is what Luke is really communicating to us. This is the heart of Luke. This is, this is it right here. This is what I'm excited about today. Luke is teaching us the universal scope of the gospel and salvation. You guys know what I mean by that? The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is universal. It's for Jew. It's for Samaritan. It's for Gentile. Remember Luke 19.10 and the account of Zacchaeus. uh, Christ came to seek and save that which was lost. Luke, I mean, you go through the book of Luke and you look at Look at his emphasis. Who is Jesus Christ reaching out to all the time? It's, it's the women, the disenfranchised. It's the children. It's the sinners. It's the tax collectors. And all the religious people are giving him a hard time for reaching out to all the disenfranchised people. This guy eats with sinners and tax collectors. How dare him, right? And it's like no matter what he does, they hate him for it. And this is, this is what Luke is emphasizing the gospel is for the Lydias. The gospel's for the slave girls, the children. Isn't it interesting? Luke writes about Jesus' childhood and brings dignity to childhood. Luke writes about Mary's Magnificat, you know, and how he used this woman. This is, this is Luke's theme. That's his emphasis. It's for the Lydias. It's for the children. It's for the secular jailers. It's for leaders in the world, too. I mean, it's, it's for the Roman proconsuls, the Sergius Pauluses. It's, it's for every single person. So we should never look around at the people around us and say, mm, gospel's not for them. It's for everybody. And uh, secondly, sovereignty here. Sovereignty. God's active role in salvation history. The church throughout Acts is overcoming, like I said, obstacle after obstacle after obstacle from within, from without, and it's taking the world by storm, not because man, not because of Paul, not because of Peter, but because it's God is the one who is driving it. You can't stop it if God's in it. Even jail cells just prove to be a platform for the gospel. God is the architect of human history and his sovereign plan just continues to unfold as his will is fulfilled. It's a movement from God and you can't stop it and he is involved every step of the way as we just humbly obey and depend on him. Do you guys, do you guys believe God's still involved in expanding the gospel today? That he has an active role in history 
He's building his church. How encouraging. Thirdly, the third theme that Luke is emphasizing is the Savior, that Jesus is alive and well. And we see this, by the way, um, Luke parallels the ministries of the apostles with Jesus' ministries. The things that happen with, I mean, it's almost, I wish I could show you, had time to show you this, but whatever happens with Peter, it happens with Paul. I mean, they go through the same situations. The same, these are both the same situations that Jesus went through. And so he's paralleling Jesus' ministry with the apostles saying, look, Jesus is still alive. He's the resurrected Savior. He's still alive. He's still at work through the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, hallelujah. That's the only thing that explains these, uh, these men, these disciples from Galilee, and how they turn the world upside down. How, how a bunch of ordinary men can turn the world upside down. Jesus is alive, and he is still changing lives and families and communities and nations. And there's, there's nothing I can say to you today that's going to encourage you to share the gospel quite like those three theological implications right there. Those are the three theological underpinnings that Luke is communicating to us over and over again through the book of Acts. It's, it, guys, theology is practical. Sometimes the theology is the application. You get that? I can give you 100,000 money principles, but you're not going to do them until you understand God's the owner of everything you have. You're just the steward. You see how practical that theology is? Sometimes theology is the application. I can tell you, I can, I can rid you guys with fear and guilt. Go out and share the gospel because you're commanded to. I can give you all sorts of commands to share the gospel and different applications, but nothing's going nothing's to encourage you to share the gospel like that. Like, the gospel is for everyone. Everyone in my life needs the gospel. God is sovereign. He has an active role in this, and Jesus is alive and well, and His Spirit is in me, and He's the one who gives me the power to do it. The theology is what's going to drive it home in your hearts today. And uh, what a privilege we have of being a part of this godly legacy, serving the same Savior, and sharing this same life-changing message that was shared at Philippi a couple thousand years ago. So I just ask you, who is the Lydia, who is the child, who is the jailer in your life that God is preparing for you to share the gospel with? Who are these people in your life? And pray for them. Pray for them that God would open their hearts and that, you, that he would give you creative ways to interact with them and share the gospel with them and just love them, right? Pray for your neighbors. Pray for your coworkers and your family, that God would just open their hearts and give you opportunities to share. Amen.